Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena. And I'm Katie. And today we'll be talking about the first week of Come Follow Me of 2021, Doctrine and Covenants Section 1 and Saints Book 1, pages 140 through 143. Okay, so first podcast ever shenanigans. We should start off by saying why we wanted to create this podcast just for a few minutes and then we'll get into Come Follow Me. I will say that I have been quasi semi not active in the church for most of 2020, mostly because I, I just had a lot of experiences in the ward I was in in Lehigh, Utah, where I felt like my opinions weren't respected and lots of stuff was just kind of flying by the wayside that wasn't okay with me. And whenever I pointed out, people basically told me to shut up, except not, I mean, they of course they were nice about it because Mormons are nice. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I felt like I couldn't, I don't know, I felt kind of alone and there was no space for me or my opinions in the church. And so I just stopped going. I mean, of course, then quarantine happened and uh, everybody stopped going. So my little, my little uh, <laughs> boycott was largely unnoticed by the church because everybody stopped going to church the same time I stopped going to church. Anyway, a few months later, I found a couple other podcasts and hey, shout out to Beyond the Block and to the Faithful Feminists. I was listening to them um, when I was moving to California this past summer and I was like, holy crap, like these kinds of experiences are I feel like this. I can be myself here, yeah. And I feel like my, um, like finally, I'm not the only person thinking these things, you know. And I really, really appreciate their podcast and what they're doing. But I don't feel like they necessarily cover disability topics enough. Um, and I mean, it makes sense. They're not disabled, right? So, um, I just really wanted to have a space where we could do a similar thing. Um, to give, to to have a spot for people who um, feel like they aren't included or aren't understood by the church because of their disabilities. Yeah, I think uh, disability is often given last place in when movements happen for marginalized communities. And I mean, to no fault of any other communities that are making movements, I think that there has to be people within the marginalized community that are willing to step forth and say, hey, us too, you know, we have, we don't necessarily have a space in this space and there needs to be one. And often I think the disabled community is the last place because, I mean, activism as a whole is really tolling. Yeah. We've both seen that in just starting this podcast. It takes more time to like get things together and to do things and it just drains your body and your mind and it's it takes a lot out of disabled people there's that and then there's also just the fact that uh disabled people are widely I think really misunderstood in I mean what they can bring to the table but even in who they are as a culture and as a people yeah and I feel like understanding other marginalized communities although I wouldn't say it's mainstream yet like really understanding the needs and the culture of other communities, it's a little bit more understood than disability because disability is such a a spectrum of so many different things. I mean, Mm -hmm. even within physical disabilities, me and you both have a physical disability, but it looks so different. But then you put on like intellectual disabilities, mental disabilities, like there's so much to disability that it's almost like hard to know where to even begin. I was thinking about that the other day, how like accommodations for one person can be a hindrance to someone else with a different disability, you know, and how like you can't really design one super accessible space for all people with disabilities. Like you can try really hard, but like there's always going to be someone with with a disability or an aspect of neurodiversity that you haven't thought of because you don't have that experience. It's challenging and that's why it's so important to bring like lift these voices of this community like our our purpose of this podcast is to lift the perspective of people with disability we're going to try to bring in like different ways of thinking surround how the church treats people with disabilities whether directly or indirectly 
And uh, we'll try to bring in guest speakers that have different disabilities than us so we can have, you know, more expert voices uh, toward all these different kinds of disabilities that we want to include in our church. The church is a place for all abilities, all all different kinds of people. And if it's not that place, we're going to make it that place. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I think... Someone has to be intentional in creating safe spaces. And yeah. the only way you can truly be intentional is by growing your knowledge and the needs of different people. Definitely. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's get to Come Follow Me now. So we're in Doctrine and Covenants 1. How do you feel about the Doctrine and Covenants, Katie? Yeah, I feel like all books of Scripture testify of the gospel, right? All of them are... Um, testimonies of Christ in in different ways because they are recorded by different groups of people. Doctrine and Covenants is unique in the fact that the entire book of scripture is recorded kind of, I mean, it was like 100 years ago or I mean 200, but it's still all within our time, right? So it's it's more understandable according to the cultures that we currently have. It reads a little easier than cultures that we don't fully understand back in biblical times and uh, the times in the Book of Mormon. The Doctrine and Covenants has a really detailed account of how the restoration happened and how the fullness of the gospel was brought back once again. So the Doctrine and Covenants is a huge blessing to really understand how that process happened and how there's so many different voices that participated in the restoration of the gospel even though we mainly think of Joseph Smith, there's so many people that contributed to it and asked questions and uh, built up the church as we know it now. Yeah, that's very true. Because it's so recent, it has a lot more impact on us, especially when we get to thorny stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> I don't want this. I don't want this to be a podcast where like where we're narrating Serena's faith crisis. Like, no, that's not what I want this to be. (laughs) I'll say that for my blog or my Instagram stories. Y'all can follow me on my Instagram and see, and see all that. But, uh, but I do want to make sure that we're including, um, multiple perspectives and, and not, and, and we're acknowledging that the doctrine and covenants can be a really hard place for some people. I mean, right off the top of my head, like everyone's thinking it is polygamy. We're not going to ignore that it happened because a lot of them felt like, like, like it was an integral part of their testimony, you know? And yet we don't even talk about those women, you know, like, like we're not, how are we honoring our ancestors if we're, if we're too scared to talk about it? So anyway, so I just want to say that I'm not afraid of thorny issues. Uh, I don't want it to be all about thorny issues, but I think for the from the perspective of honoring our heritage, um, we have to at least like mention it. So I think that's going to be the subtitle to your book one day that you publish. I'm not afraid of thorny issues, <laughs> and I love that about you. That's that's what's going to make oh, this podcast great. Yeah, your autobiography. <laughs> I think that's what's going to make this podcast great. Like I think countless times our current prophets and apostles have said questions are good and. Like, don't be afraid of asking questions. And there's a lot of questions in church history, and that's not bad. Like, the the yep. restoration is a process, and we've certainly seen, like, different parts of this process move forward, and some stay in the past. And it's interesting to think about how, like, what else in the future is going to be in the past, in the future. Do you know what I mean? Ooh. <laughs> The restoration. You're giving me like another existential crisis. Like I have enough of those each day. Katie. Oh, sorry about that. I think it's a good thing though. Like you think about like, like for example, disability in the church. I think that things yeah. are a lot better than I assumed before researching them. Like my experience being disabled in the church, it's had good and bad. Yeah. And I thought overall that the church didn't super consider people with disabilities. But then I looked at the handbook and I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's a ton of sections about disabilities in the handbook. So it's really cool. The more you research and the more like, you know, the handbook changes that just happened yeah. and added intellectual disabilities in the church is continually being restored and asking questions helps the fullness of the gospel to come to pass, in my opinion. Good, yeah. Restoration can't happen if we don't ask questions and bring concerns to leaders so they can consider them and take them to God and see how these questions 
come into the fullness of the gospel being brought forth in the restoration. Yeah, I I agree with that. Uh, I just hope that we don't just take a look at the handbook, we meaning the general populace of the church, mm-hmm. and be like, oh, we're done here. Like, oh, no, yeah. just because just because it's in the handbook doesn't mean that people are actually living it, you know, mm-hmm. and that people or that people are aware of it or that they're understanding it. So I think there's a lot of work to do on that front. Right. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's talk about section one. Yeah, let's get into it. Okay. Um, do you read the Saints book, the pages 140 to 143? Yeah. So basically, it's just kind of the context of how section one came about. Basically, there was this guy, Ezra, Ezra Booth, and he um, he was unhappy with Joseph and the church, and he published an essay or like a letter in local newspaper, basically, and kind of aired his grievances and they that Joseph and um and the council were just kind of like oh this is bad PR for the church and we need to do something about this and that's when they decided to um put together all the revelations that Joseph had received and um and make the book of commandments and section 1 is the preface that they decided to do uh, so so basically a couple people tried to write Doctrine and Covenants 1 before Joseph did, right? And everybody was like, no, your version sucks. And William McClellan was like super learned guy. Um, he was really well educated. And so he wrote a version and nobody liked it. And so they asked Joseph to dictate a revelation. And this is what, and section one is what Joseph d- dictated. Um, and I tried to find a copy of what William McClellan actually wrote and I couldn't. Um, but it's interesting because what I did find is, uh, so there's a testimony of the witnesses to the book of commandments in the Joseph Smith papers, um, which is, so jo- Joseph Smith papers is hosted by the church. So this is not anti-Mormon material, just so people know. So this is the testimony of the witnesses to the book of commandments. And um, I'm not going to read it, but basically they have, it's kind of like the declaration of independence. They have all their signatures at the bottom, but uh, uh, his signature is not in his handwriting. <laughs> like they, like there's a bunch of different signatures on there and a bunch of different handwriting. There's like five names that are in one handwriting. And then at the bottom of the page in the Joseph Smith papers, it says, it lists like the names of all the people whose handwriting were on the page. And William McClellan's name is not there. So someone wrote his name for him uh, to this testimony. And I, that kind of bugs me. That bugs me a little bit that like, he didn't necessarily sign off on section one, um, but he but they signed it off for him. Like, how do you feel about that? Like, do you think there's a, a tie-in with um, with disability in that? What What do you mean? I mean, like, just kind of the like co-opting your voices, right? And and people saying and and people signing oh, this is what the disabled community thinks and actually you don't, you know, like, or how, oh, you, yeah. do you see what I'm saying? Do you think yeah. there's a, am I, am I imagining things? Do you see a correlation there? I think there's definitely a correlation. I can't speak for why he didn't sign his own name. I don't yeah, know a for lot sure, about that. For sure. But yeah, I mean, the challenge with disabilities is there's literally some people with disabilities that have trouble communicating. So yeah. kind of trying to understand their perspective is a little more challenging at times. And speaking for them, like if they have a caregiver that helps them communicate or different forms of communication that they use, that's kind of different. But um, speaking for people who have the ability to speak but are spoken for instead, that's obviously really problematic. And yeah, for sure, it happens a lot in the disability community um, and how we're portrayed as people that, I mean, we're really not. (laughs) Yeah. Like we're portrayed in the eyes of what people are comfortable with, you know, like it's more comfortable to look at a person with a disability who leads a happy life. And even though they are facing challenging things, they're happy. You know, that's the case sometimes, but that's not always the case. And the other stories aren't told very often because they're uncomfortable for able-bodied people. So I think being spoken for is, yeah, definitely a huge part of being disabled. And it's very frustrating. 
Yeah, so uh, William McClellan, I empathize with you there. No one likes being spoken for, and um, I'm not going to say why he didn't sign it. I'm not going to say that I'm a church historian, because I'm not. But uh, that's an interesting thing to point out, something to ponder. And then one more thing before we actually go into the actual text of section one, let's talk about Ezra really quick. So he the guy who who wrote that letter and it was published and prompted the book of commandments so he got back he had just gotten back from a thousand mile trip to lay the foundation of the city of zion in missouri and in his letter he said that on that trip he learned the quote imbecility of human nature quote and his own quote weakness um he said he felt humiliated that he was in a delusion um and that basically felt that the prophecy and visions that he had received earlier or that people had that Joseph Smith had told him earlier had failed when he arrived in Missouri. Um, and then he gets back. And so so basically he gets there for whatever reason. And I'm not going to say he's wrong or right in this, but for whatever reason, he has this revelation or he feels like prompted, inspired to go to Missouri to lay the foundation of the city of Zion. He gets there. It's not what he expected. Comes back and he tries to talk to Joseph and Sidney Rigdon and Oliver Cowdery. And according to him, they, uh, according to him in that letter, they avoided his questions of quote, objections and difficulties. Um, and anyway, which I, I think that's interesting because I feel like like we were talking about questions again at the at the earlier earlier in the podcast and how we need questions to further revelation to further um the restoration but uh there's this guy here who is having a faith crisis like I'm going to call that what it is to me I felt a connection to him there because I've had a lot of those moments where I'm like I don't understand this. This is not what I expected. This is a huge disappointment to me. Where is God in this? Please give me an answer. Please tell me. This is someone who's trying to hold on to their faith. Who's who? Like if he if he didn't want to hold on to his faith, he wouldn't have talked to them about it. Oh, you know, yeah. he would have been like, you know what? Screw this. I'm out of here. Like I'm not even going to talk to you guys about it. But. But he wanted an explanation. He wanted to give the church and Sidney Rigdon and Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith a chance to, like, explain, you know. And like I said, not saying that either one of them was right or wrong in what he expected, because I know um, expectations are a huge thing, right? Like, we can build up expectations in our mind about about the spirit and about different things, and, and it be totally off. Mm-hmm. However, I don't like the way that I don't like that he felt like they were avoiding his questions. Mm -hmm. Whether or not they actually avoided it is, again, a matter for historians. But the point is he felt like they were avoiding his questions. And I have felt that a lot in church. And, um, And then they go on from that. And then they decide, you know what? Like, I'm going to use his faith crisis to create this whole new book of commandments, you know, without answering his questions like that. That frustrates me. I guess we're going to get in the scriptures in a second. Um, But one thing I wanted to say is this first section, it speaks to weak things being made strong. The Lord will use weak things. But then we don't even really know the story of Ezra. I'm speaking of him like I'm calling him the weak thing. I think that the restoration of the church was a really big event. And everyone involved were kind of like infants. (laughs) In the moment, because there was so much to be brought forth and so much to be done. And people had, obviously, ideas of God, ideas of the Spirit. They've had their own experiences that have led them to restore the church. So you can kind of call Ezra weak in that he was still on his spiritual journey. I think all of us are weak. But but it's true that through this weak moment of confusion and the leader's maybe not treating Ezra the best way that he should have been treated. Maybe Ezra shouldn't have published his information in the papers. Like, I don't think people are not allowed to speak out about the church, you know? So there's, there's a lot of ways you could look at it, but I think overall, like we don't know about Ezra very well. And that hurts, that hurts me, but it is cool how it talks about weakness in this section and, 
and it admits that the leaders are imperfect in the way that it says the Lord will use weakness, will use weak things to bring about his work. The last thing I wanted to say about Ezra Booth, not George Ezra, beautiful man, I hope he's single. Um, Ezra Booth <laughs> is that it made me think about faith crises and about why that bothers me so much. And I think it's because it's it's the validation versus the gaslighting sort of thing. And um and not necessarily from like from a trauma perspective, although that it certainly does cause trauma, but about whether or not your perspective is acknowledged as a valid perspective or whether people are saying no that's false you're spreading lies or you don't know what you think or you're thinking the wrong way or what you're feeling is not true you know that is intense gaslighting and i think that's something i think that's something that a lot of people with who experience neurodiversity experience you know people who what's the phrase uh who are not neuro neurotypical people will say that's not the right way to think like no you're wrong your feelings are not true and they'll engage in this gaslighting and it made me think you know what i i think that a faith crisis is a form of neurodiversity how 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 can it be anything else because faith is something that we feel. It's informed by what we think, the knowledge that we have, um, and how we interpret the 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 knowledge that we receive, right? And if we our minds work in different ways, then we're going to interpret it in different ways, you know. And we shouldn't be um, we shouldn't be saying to someone like, no, the way your mind interprets this is wrong. Because, because that's, that's gaslighting, you know, that's, that's, I don't know, you get what I'm saying here? Like, I think that faith crises should be acknowledged and celebrated as a form of neurodiversity and as just a a different faith experience rather than saying someone is losing their quote unquote testimony. You know, these are people who are experiencing faith in a different way. And that doesn't mean that we don't want them to participate doesn't mean that we shouldn't be allowed to engage in these discussions because how many times do we do we do that well i don't want i don't want to hear your perspective because you've left the church or because you're doubting you know like don't don't give me any doubts like just closing 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 the ears off from other perspectives like maybe someone isn't even necessarily having a quote unquote faith crisis but they're just interpreting it in a different way because that's the way their mind works you know, um, and I want to do more research on this and I found some websites, but I think I, I would guess my intuition tells me that, um, a lot of people who experience various forms of neurodiversity, um, people with autism, um, people who like, I was reading this thing on this blog. I said, I wasn't going to mention it, but now I'm mentioning it about this, this woman who, who attended this faith conference in England. Um, and it was a celebration of neurodiversity and disability in the church. Um, not in our church, but in Christianity in general, I think it was the church of England. Anyway, I might be wrong on that point is her dyslexia is so bad that she like can't read the scriptures at all. It's been 10 years of a struggle for her to read the scriptures. And like, how often do we think about that? Like, how easy is it for us to read the scriptures? You know, like how, how, how much of an impact would it have on your faith if you couldn't just open up your scriptures and, and read the verse that you're longing for and read revelation? Like, okay, obviously this person has to build their faith in a different way, you know? Um, and then she was talking about how she asked instead for the person that was sharing this this story from the scriptures to rephrase it and retell it rather than just reading it out loud and how that helped her, you know, and then, and she was like, it took 30 seconds, but all of a sudden the stories were accessible to me. Yeah. And, and an interesting thing to think about too, is the church, I think multiple lessons I've had in talking about recognizing the spirit. A lot of people say like, 
sometimes you'll have a burning in your bosom. Sometimes mm. it'll be a small voice. Like there's a lot of different ways that we can recognize the spirit, but there's only one way we can interpret the spirit. And it's yes! what the prophet Woo! says. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think personal revelation kind of gets the backseat in the car a lot of times, even though if you think about it, the whole doctrine and covenants, a lot of it is people having personal revelation, asking the prophet or leaders questions, and then the prophet going to God and then saying, Lord, what is this? And then us as a church learning about what the what the Lord would say about a particular thing, you know? So that's, that's my perspective on asking questions and just how important it is to ask questions. It literally brings about the restoration. And we shouldn't feel guilty for asking questions, even if they're outside of what acceptable questions are to ask. Yes. It's how it's how we receive more light and how we receive more guidance from God. And your your thoughts on neurodiversity just blow my mind because all these different perspectives are needed in the gospel. I can't remember who gave the talk, but that talk about like how the gospel, I think it was Quentin L. Cook. Ooh. I don't know. I don't remember for sure, but it was talking about how the gospel is like a symphony and like we need all these different like sounds and voices to bring everything together to make the gospel a beautiful sound. And that's how the gospel works. The, The Bible and the Book of Mormon talk about how the the church is the body and like all these different people are different parts of the body and how it works together. Mm. Um, but, but when it, when people identify someone's question as going too far, they shut it down. And that, that actually is disrespectful to how God works in my opinion is shutting people's questions down. So yeah. How often, especially with neurodiversity, does that happen to disabled people? I'm sure I mean, I can't say more often than able-bodied people, but I, it's an, it's an aspect of being disabled in the church. That's, that's difficult. That's, that's hard to grasp and still feel like you're needed and included in the gospel. I think that's a great tie in um, because just talking about how disabled people or people with disabilities might interpret the scriptures differently and have different questions um, let's look at section one. <laughs> yeah. Finally. We're like poking at it. We just haven't dove in yet. So <laughs> yeah, uh, we're probably, we're not going to read it verse by verse cause uh, we don't have time for that. But, uh, let's talk about verse two for verily the voice of the Lord is unto all men and there is none to escape and there is no eye that shall not see neither ear that shall not hear neither heart that shall not be penetrated. What is your reaction to this verse, Katie? I think metaphors are used throughout the scriptures, right? Like metaphors, the well, the purpose of a metaphor period is to connect something that's known to something that's unknown. And yes. they're used, I mean, throughout literature period, but throughout the scriptures, and they're very helpful. But you have to consider if the scriptures are for every person on earth, because the gospel is for everyone on earth, shouldn't the metaphors include aspects that everyone on earth could relate to. I get that there's different cultures throughout time, but to use metaphors that have to do with vision or hearing that have to do with the body, that people's bodies work differently. And some people don't have the ability to see, don't have the ability to hear. What is this metaphor to them? It kind of discludes them in a way. Yeah. um, I think, I think I can understand that on a surface level, but because I can see and because I can hear, um, I, I don't think it's as visceral for me as someone who, who can't do those things. Um, but I just think of other verses where, where it is a metaphor, like, um, verses that talk about running, uh, run and not be weary and walk and will not faint. Like (laughs) I can't walk and not faint. I mean, I keep my consciousness with my cataplexy, but like, I do faint, quote unquote faint, or or anytime it talks about awaken mm-hmm. as someone with a sleep disorder, I'm like, okay, you're kind of stigmatizing sleep and saying that it's a bad thing, but which, are you saying that I'm bad for needing to sleep all the time? Like whenever, whenever uh, people talk about Jesus Christ in the garden of Gethsemane and how the apostles fell asleep while Jesus was suffering, I'm just kind of like, bro, I'm sorry. Like you obviously never had narcolepsy. Like, (laughs) 
sometimes you just can't stay awake, you know? And and can we stop shaming them for for like being in tune with their bodies? I have a visceral reaction to those verses, and so I can kind of see that there is something in in verse 2 that um that is problematic. And I looked it up. I wanted to explore that hunch, and I found a wonderful blog by a wonderful pastor called Ableist Metaphors in Worship and Why It Matters. It's by Teresa Soto, a Unitarian Universalist minister in Michigan and Oregon. They say, quote, every time the disabled body is used as a source of metaphor for being less, being broken, or being wrong, that metaphor violates three principles, which is preserving the experience of people but seeking to know more, two, preserving the boundaries between self and other, and three, does not seek to assimilate or obliterate the lived experiences of people. So these three principles, earlier in the blog post, they were talking about how that should be used to evaluate metaphors, right? Anyway, they're saying that every time disabled bodies are used as a metaphor, we need to evaluate it against those principles. And then I'll continue in the quote. It says, in that moment, the negative metaphor eliminates curiosity about the experience of others. After all, everyone can run, right? Or run in their minds. What does that even mean? The negative metaphor confuses the boundary between the disabled person and the one observing them, allowing the observer to overlay their own meaning on the disabled body and describe the quality of the disabled experience. My experience is that walking is hard. Part of using metaphors skillfully is being accountable, that having the experience that walking is hard is distinct from running a difficult race. Mashing everything together isn't the best approach. It is a way to obliterate or assimilate the stories of those voices at the margins. And they they make a case later on that ableist metaphors are examples of faith without works, which it's an interesting mental jump, but uh, let's comment. I want to hear your comments on that quote first. I think it's an incredible way to look at ableism. Some people might have a hard time picking apart scripture. Scripture is from God. It's how we learn about God. Um, But it's important to understand how language affects perception of things that are outside of our own personal realities. So although this is a useful metaphor for a lot of people to understand how the Lord is going to reach out to the people, how everyone will understand what the Lord's purpose is. Everyone will hear the voice of the Lord. Uh, A different way it possibly could have been said is that no spirit shall not understand or recognize the Lord, right? Mm -hmm. Because everyone on earth has a spirit. Everyone comes to earth and has a spirit in their bodies. It's understandable why it was written at the time, because that's how the language was then, is that ableism is soaked in the language then, and it's still soaked in language now. As a writer, I want to use my words to elicit emotion from people, right? That's my goal is to make an emotional impact on my audience. Like it's visceral, like the metaphors, using these kinds of metaphors are visceral, but I think that's where the danger lies, you know? Teresa is saying the point of using metaphors, and this is exactly what you were saying, Katie, at all, is that they create experiential and emotional links for others, Emotions are one legitimate way of knowing things. Here is where our responsibility arises as we use metaphors, since they are for the purpose of making emotional connections with the audience. So the responsibility of how well we reach the audience is on us. People talk about, uh, oh, you're, you're offended, so it's your choice that you're offended. Like, it's not my fault. Well, maybe you should not put it that way. That's really offensive for people who are different from you. Yeah, especially when it has to do with experiences outside of their own Like if you, for example, if you use an ableist metaphor and you're trying to reach an audience, like, oh, does that mean that disabled people are not part of your target audience and why? Like if you go to verse 24 in Doctrine and Covenants 1, it says, behold, I am God and I have spoken it. These are my commandments. These commandments are of me and were given unto my servants in their weakness after the manner of their language that they might come to understanding. So that's where I I give a little bit of a break because it's true that ableism is in language. Like it's seen in language to this day. This verse gives me hope because it says given to my servants in their weakness. Ableism is part of the language and it's part of the weakness of the language, in my opinion, after the manner of their language that they might come to an understanding. This suggests that anytime the Lord speaks, he speaks according to how we will understand and 
the Lord doesn't forget people's disabilities. Like he'll still be able to communicate through his spirit to people's disabilities and they won't be outcasted by him. Perhaps the way that leaders speak, they may outcast people according to how they speak with ableism metaphors, for example. Yeah. Um, but the Lord will never outcast disabled people. Um, and my hope is that there is, as he speaks according to how we understand, if ableism not a part of our language anymore, then the leaders will stop communicating with ableism. That's the importance of asking questions and bringing this up. Like if we don't bring this up and say, hey, church leaders, ableist metaphors are a problem, then they might not know, they might not bring it to the Lord and things might not change. You know, I think it's all like kind of like a circle and we're an important part of that circle. Yeah. As we improve our collective understanding as a church and we improve our understanding of language and ableism, then what the Lord gives in the matter of revelation will be less ableist. Like, I don't think the Lord is ableist, but I think the way that he communicates messages to his prophets, his prophets can interpret the messages in ableist ways and use ableist language to interpret the Lord's messages because that's how they understand from the Lord. So I think that as we bring awareness to the experience of disabled people, that there will be a a shift from on top as well as from the bottom church culture, like just people person to person within the church. No, no, I think what you're saying is really interesting. Um, Another thing that occurs to me in that verse is if God decides that there's no problem with speaking to someone in the language that they understand, then why should we think that we're better than that and only speak in a way that we understand, you know? Mm, Yeah. We need to acknowledge that people understand things different from us. And when we decide to speak to them in less ableist language or in more inclusive, disability inclusive language, in metaphors that pertain more to them, then we're becoming more godlike as we're speaking to them in their language, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point, too. Can we talk about verse 16? Oh, yeah. Uh, So verse 16, I'm just going to go in there. says, um, so basically they're talking about people who have sinned. In the the verses previous, um, in verse 13, it says the anger of the Lord is kindled, uh, blah, blah, blah. His sword's going to cut people down, etc., um, cut off people who aren't hearing the words, people who have strayed from ordinances and broken commandments. So verse 16 is kind of an elaboration of who they're talking about, the people that, that the Lord is going to cut off. And it says, These people seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way, and after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world, and whose substance is that of an idol, which waxeth old and shall perish in Babylon, even Babylon the great which shall fall. Okay, I don't care about Babylon. My point is <laughs> is about walking in their own way. I'm not going to read into intention, because I can't know that for sure, but I worry that this verse can be weaponized against neurodiversity, neurodiversity and against people with disabilities. And how how we live with the commandments that we have. I feel like this verse just kind of bears down on individuality. Or it can bear down on individuality. And maybe this is very American of me. Because I know <laughs> Americans are much more individualistic than other countries. But I think there's an aspect to individu- individualism that is important. And that is being no respecter of persons. Like, it it even goes on, pretty sure. It says no respecter of persons in verse 35. Yes, exactly. No respecter of persons in in verse 35. And I was thinking about that. First of all, there's hundreds of commandments. And Derek on Beyond the Block uh, has this project that he wants to do about enumerating all the commandments in the scriptures. And he expects there to be hundreds and hundreds, okay? Obviously, no one is keeping all the commandments all at once, okay? And the commandments, the most important commandments are what's considered righteous changes over time for example the church's relationship with marijuana and medical marijuana especially that's a tool that many people with certain disabilities use to mitigate their symptoms like people with epilepsy um, can use it uh, multiple sclerosis um, a lot of 
kind of neurological things. Some people with narcolepsy in my narcolepsy groups on Facebook have tried it. I haven't tried it, but is it okay to say that I drink? (laughs) Hello, Mormon podcasting world. I drink alcohol sometimes, and that helps me. Like, for example, when I was out protesting this summer and we were in the streets We had an altercation with a driver who was trying to run over some protesters, which I'm not going to comment. I'm not going to, I'm trying not to get upset about this, but she was trying to run down one of our people and a bunch of us just crowded the car because she was running. We were stopped in the intersection, right? And she just was trying to ram through and we approached her car and I just yelled at her. I was like, you get back, you get back. You are not running him over today. And I put my finger in her face and I said, get back. Anyway, point is, I was upset, and eventually she she backed up, and I scared her away. It's nice to know I can be scary. Hey, hey. Um, <laughs> and immediately afterwards, I collapsed, right, because I got angry, and that's part of my disability, part of cataplexy, is whenever my emotions fluctuate, my legs collapse, right? Like, I'm nowhere near my car. My car's blocks away. We've been marching, but some other people had cars and trucks, so I sat in the truck, and someone's like, hey, do you want a white claw? And I'm like, you know what? I, could, I would love a white claw. And I drank a White Claw within like an hour or two after drinking the White Claw. Because it's a depressant, my anxiety was gone and my and I'd calmed down and I could walk again. And I needed to walk again. And I'm not saying that that's a treatment, a viable treatment, long-term treatment for, for cataplexy. Um, like I don't recommend any, I think you need to be careful um, with alcohol, with any substance. But I do think that it's important to recognize sometimes the things that might be bad for some people, uh, bad for able-bodied people, can actually really benefit someone with a disability. Also with narcolepsy, like, I need to drink caffeine. Like, there are coping mechanisms, right? Coping mechanisms combined that help. If, if you don't have access to medication, with the way the insurance system is set up in the U.S., a lot of times... A lot of people with narcolepsy and cataplexy do not have access to the medication they need. Even if you don't have a diagnosis, you know that you're tired. You know that you can't walk, right? You have, and yet you're still pressured to live up to the production standards of an ableist world, right? Of a capitalist world. And you you don't want to die. You want to make money and buy food and groceries, go to the grocery store and, and further your education and achieve your goals. And sometimes the only way to do that, if you don't have a diagnosis, if you don't have medication, is to acquire these coping mechanisms. Quite honestly, like coffee and caffeine is really helpful for me as someone with narcolepsy. And that, some people will say that goes against the word of wisdom. Alcohol is really helpful for me if I'm in a stressful situation and I need to calm down so I can walk, so I can get myself out of the situation, so I can be safe. And people a long time ago, like, like not a long time ago, but only a few decades ago, people, the church would have never considered medical marijuana where they talk about every man walketh in his own way and in the image of his own God. I worry that that can be used to tell people oh, you're being idolatrous, you're being prideful by saying that the commandments, the word of wisdom doesn't apply to you. Yeah. Sorry, I just talked for a really long time. No, you're good. That's that's all important stuff to note. We we can still be good, faithful Christians and walk differently than other people, right? Live our lives differently yes. than other people. And it's interesting. I'm glad that you pointed out. It's interesting that the I am no respecter of persons line yes. is in this section, like another shift. I'm excited about this. Yeah, it's another shift in this just one section. There's like so many shifts from one idea to another. I would say like toward the end of the section, it really kind of all comes together. Oh, yeah. I want to say something about respecter of persons. Yes. So I Googled that. And I found an old Sunday school lesson from the New Testament um, in on the church website. Basically, so in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35, and this is what the Sunday school lesson points out. Um, it says, some Jewish saints teach that the Gentiles who join the church must keep the law of Moses, including circumcision for men. The apostles determined that this is not required by the Lord. So the phrase, no respecter of person, that is directly given to... to um, to Peter when he's saying, when he received the revelation to teach the gospel to the Gentiles, right? And basically what God is saying, like, okay, I don't care about your man-made distinctions between groups of people. 
I don't respect those distinctions. The gospel is for everybody. This is radically inclusive, right? And then after that fact is when some Jewish people are saying, who are not Gentiles, so these are the people who have the gospel first, are saying, well, they're not keeping the commandments. They're not getting circumcised. Well, it's not in their culture, A. B, like the law of Moses was eradicated with Jesus. C, anyway, well, in, in, these, in these verses, it basically says that it's not a requirement for them. They don't need to be circumcised to be saved, you know? And how many times do we do that? Like, I feel like this is exactly, like, that's proof that I'm onto something here. <laughs> that commandments are different for different groups of people. And judgment is for God only. We're not going to get into my whole theory on sin because that's its own thing. But, like, I do think we can't just evaluate someone everybody who's keeping the commandments based on one standard like there is there is scriptural evidence that commandments are different for different people and that sinning is different for different people and it's interesting that the example you pulled it's two different groups of people living at the same time so you can't even say yeah like oh it shifts over time it's like Based on needs, based on culture, there can be differences in what the Lord requires. I think that the Mm -hmm. gospel overall saving ordinances, the gospel applies to everyone, but the commandments, like specific commandments given to us by prophets uh, can shift for different people for different reasons. Within the same time period. I love that you pointed that out. Okay, now let's go on to what you were saying about it all kind of coming together at the end of section one. Yeah, so <laughs> verse 37 and 38, they're quoted fairly frequently. Like they're probably ah! more popular scriptures of the doctrine and covenants. 37, search these commandments for they are true and faithful and the prophecies and promises which are in them shall be fulfilled. 38, this is the one that I feel like there's a lot of different ways to look at 38. And if... <laughs> There's some people that look at 38 like it brings down the hammer, Mm. and there's other people that Mm. look at 38 in other ways. Uh, What I, the Lord, have spoken, I have spoken, and I excuse not myself. And though the heavens and the earth shall pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled, whether by my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. So (laughs) let's, let's break this down a little bit. When I was on my mission, I went through different ways that I was studied the scriptures. And one of my favorite ways that I studied the scriptures was I actually went through the hymns, like the hymnal. And at the bottom, there's scriptures to every single hymn. Mm-hmm. So I would look at the scripture, read the hymn or sing it during my study, yeah. and then go to the scriptures and find these scriptures and try to figure out like how they're connected. And one interesting thing about this is verse 38 is connected to Doctrine and Covenants 68, verse 4. Mm. So both of these scriptures are referenced for hymn 22, we listen to a prophet's voice. And Ooh, what, 68 was given at the same time. Yes, the way. Yeah, so 68 was given at the same time as section 1. Um, so yeah, so they're connected in multiple ways. Uh, whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be scripture and shall be the will of the Lord and the mind of the Lord. And it goes on. Um, but I want to focus on that first restrictive clause, I guess, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost. So mm. I think a mm. lot of people read verse 38 as in whatever the prophet says goes and it's from the Lord, period, you know. Um, but it can be looked at as whether by my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. So when God speaks it and passes it down to the prophet, and then he speaks God's word, it is the same. Not yeah. whatever the prophet says, no matter what it is, is God's word, not the other way around. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that's important. Yeah, so 68 really points to that. When moved upon by the Holy Ghost. So when the prophet speaks and he's moved upon by the Holy Ghost, he's speaking the Lord's will, right? So that's that's where that's connected, and that's where verse 38 is kind of confused. Yeah. Um. I appreciate that distinction because that's helpful in evaluating whether or not something comes from the Lord. Um, I still think it's difficult um, to really tell, especially because we say, oh, everyone feels the Spirit differently. Like, who are you to say that that person is not feeling the Spirit? But however, when a person is a church leader and they're in a position of power, 
greater with greater power comes greater responsibilities. Isn't that like a Batman quote? I, I no. think it's one of the presidents of the United States, actually. <laughs> it up to make sure I, I think it might be like fdr or something <laughs> i'm gonna say it's batman okay <laughs> anyway uh i think that's true and i think i'm not gonna soapbox this we need to be really careful or we <clears throat> leaders because i'm a woman and therefore i can't lead in this church <clears throat> anyway the top leaders of the church need to be really careful because when the Lord says, what I have spoken, I have spoken, and I excuse not myself, he's literally saying, I'm not going to apologize, you know? And then he goes on to say, whether by my own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. I feel like that is a huge loophole for leaders to avoid accountability and to mm. not apologize. Because we're breaking down, if you say something wrong, you should apologize. The assumption here is that the Lord would never say something wrong, so he must never apologize. Okay, fine. You can say the Lord is perfect, but we know you're not perfect. Prophets, presidents, leaders, elders, quorum leaders, y'all are human. And if you extend that whole verse to yourself and incorporate that entire attitude, that's not that attitude is not for you to incorporate because you are still human. You still need to apologize. If they do that, then all of a sudden we have a class of people that are exempt from accountability and from apologizing. And I think that's very dangerous, especially when we have all these other factors like racism, patriarchy, capitalism, ableism that are favoring people in power and hurting marginalized communities. That's a great point. Yeah. So when we interpret it with more verses to bring more context in, right, it shows that it's a different explanation than people that are all powerful in the church and excusable, you know, like that makes sense. And there's proof in the scriptures that say that that's not the right way to interpret this. Agreed. Yeah. We, I, uh, is there anything else you want to talk about? Well, I was just thinking, I'm like, did we do it? Did we do our first podcast? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we definitely did not go verse by verse and I am sorry. I'll just tell you this right now. I have inherited my dad's ability to talk. And uh, he he always tells me, um, he's, he says, don't interrupt me. I speak in paragraphs, not sentences. <laughs> oh, that's good. I like that. Look out for our next episode coming out. We will break down the next Come Follow Me section. So watch out, folks. Great. And follow us on Instagram. We're at holyhuman, a-N. And please consider um, contributing to our Patreon if you like our content because uh, these programs that we're recording on are cost money and a website costs money and this uses up a lot of our time and we still have to fight against the capitalist machine. So <laughs> <laughs> patreon.com slash holy human. Well, before we go, we wanted to thank our friend Matif for the musical intro and outro received from freesound.org. Thank you, thank you. Folks, we will be back soon with another episode of Holy Human. Thank you for tuning in. Bye.